Oh, here's another great example. Ayn Rand, right? Yeah. Ayn Rand is not a philosopher. Well, she is. She's just not a good one. Yeah, there know? you go. That's nice. So, yeah. you know, we, sometimes we're using philosopher in a like classificatory way, and sometimes we're using it in an evaluative way. Yeah. And sometimes it's just like who gets to be in our little club, you know? That's right. Hey, welcome back to another episode of Parker's Pensies. I'm your host, Parker Sedicase, and this is a podcast where we explore all the deepest ideas in philosophy, theology, nature, and life. I love thinking about cool stuff, so come think with me. Today's episode is another very special one. I have with me uh, Dr. Greg Sadler, and we're going to be talking about public philosophy and Philip K. Dick, which I'm really excited about. A lot of you will know that I have a Philip K. Dick tattoo, and uh, we're going to be talking about the book behind that. So I'm pretty excited about that. Before I jump in, though, I want to thank everyone who's making this podcast happen over on Patreon. You guys are awesome. If this is your top five, top 10, maybe even top 15 favorite podcast, please consider becoming a Patreon patron. You can find the link in the description, uh, wherever you're getting this podcast at. And uh, there's a lot of different levels that you can give at. And there's different benefits, perks at each level. So check that out. Also, if you're watching on YouTube, you can find the merchandise the store you can find that as one of the uh things to browse through on my homepage. you can find the store directly uh look at all the parker's pensies merch uh i've been working with chase han and there's some really really cool stuff so go check that out uh, another way to support the podcast is down here there's a super thanks button you can give above and beyond the patreon or just a one-time gift you can buy a, a cup of coffee or something like that appreciate that there's lots and lots of ways to to give lots of ways to uh, connect with me you can find the discord server you can find our Facebook group, Parker's Pensies Ponsieurs. Um, lots of ways. Twitter, Facebook, all that good stuff. You can find me. And I'm still a small enough program where I will respond to your stuff so far. Um, no promises in the future when I am giant and bigger than Joe Rogan and all that stuff. But without further ado, let's bring in Greg and let's get talking about public philosophy, who counts as a philosopher, what is philosophy, and all sorts of other stuff. Here we go. Greg, thanks so much for coming on the podcast, man. Yeah, thanks for bringing me on. Yeah, this is huge. I've, I've really been enjoying your channel lately, uh, especially because I've seen your work on Philip K. Dick and super, super exciting. Um, before we jump into that, though, I want to I find out from you, how did you get into philosophy in the first place? It was, it was pretty random. Um, I come from a family that doesn't have an awful lot of, you know, at least at that time, college grads, let alone academics in it. Now it's, yeah. it's kind of changed with the, you know, the younger generation. And um, I took two philosophy classes when I was in high school. One was actually called a philosophy class and it was just terrible and it would have turned me off forever. <laughs> it was very dry, you know, very dull. The teacher yeah. wasn't a good teacher. And then I had a, a really good class that was supposed to be a sacraments class and they brought in this little guy from Seattle as a substitute teacher. And he decided he was going to teach us about Augustine, which hmm. meant that if he was going to do, you know, if he was going to explain Augustine properly, he needed to teach us some philosophy. So we did some Plato and some Aristotle. We weren't actually like reading texts. He would just get up to the board and explain ideas. And then we'd chat about it. And, um, I, you know, I, I that kind of opened my eyes to it. And then Went in the army, you know, read a, a few things here and there, and then got out and went to college. And when I got to college, my mom's boyfriend or previous boyfriend had had said, as soon as you get to college, declare a major right away. 
that way you're not just lost in a whole sea of freshmen. You'll like hmm. hook up with professors and, and you know, they'll, they'll kind of guide you. So yeah. I looked down this list and I was like, ah, philosophy, that sounds cool. I think I, I could get into that. And I just started taking classes and it kept on going. And then I graduated and in, in the year between when I was working going, you know, I had to decide what I was going to do. Should I go to grad school for philosophy. I'd also majored in math. So should I go to grad school for math or should I just like take the actuarial exams? And, and I decided for philosophy. And fortunately, I wound up in a, a good place for studying it where I didn't get turned off by, you know, uh, very restrictive approaches or, you know, the, the need for prestige or stuff like that. It was a pluralistic department where we had lots of different people, you know, representing different perspectives. And there were, the, you know, there was the possibility of like taking Greek classes with the classic department or, hmm. you know, stuff in continental philosophy with the speech comm department or stuff on rhetoric with the uh, English department. And so I just kept, you know, kind of plowing away. So you could say that I stayed in philosophy in part out of inertia, you know, like a, a forward movement inertia. Yeah. But I, you know, I was always attracted to this, like, you know, digging into ideas. We talk about the big questions like how should I live or, you know, what's real and, you know, those sorts of things. Those have, those have always been of interest to me. And philosophy was one of the places where you got to explore that. Not, not exclusively. I mean, you could explore it in other fields, but it seemed like that was the best place to go. Right. And so, you know, I was, I was really fortunate in that, you know, I've had the opportunity to be a professor. I've, on other stuff with philosophy it's i think it's a bit tougher for younger people now um you know the job market's pretty bad and yeah so it's you know i i kind of lucked out having come up in the 90s when when i did yeah 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 well so um some people will have like the plan B job, um, which is like, yeah, yeah, y- you know, YouTube or Substack. For me, that's plan A because I, I, I know a lot of people who don't have jobs who apply to 300, 500 other applicant jobs and stuff. So I, I want to do this. I think this is awesome. You, you kind of have the plan B thing going already. You have uh, 123,000 subscribers, <laughs> like 2,500 uh, videos on YouTube. Um, how'd you get into like the public <laughs> philosophy game? Well, like, like everything else, it, without any proper planning or due diligence. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Just kind of stumbling into things. <laughs> and, and again, locking out. Um, with the YouTube thing, I got into doing YouTube and uploading videos, uh, I want to say around 2010, 
And it was my, at that time, fiance, now wife, who convinced me to start uploading content. She, Smart she, lady. Yeah, she'd given me a flip cam back okay. when there was actually a company called Flip before nice. they went out of business. And she bought it for me for like chronicling my time with my kids in the summer. But she, you know, she, she was also like, well, you know, you can record your classes. People are doing that thing these days. And I was like, who'd want to watch this? You know, um, I'm, I'm a nobody teaching at some, you know, little historically black university in the South that hardly has, you know, a tech budget. Um, and she was like, well, just try it out. I mean, what do you have to lose? You know, and that's, that's actually a kind of a good way to approach it. There's, there's zero, you know, it, what's going to happen. People say mean comments or something. Um, and it turned out that there were a lot of, I, I would say that, my stuff caught on not because of any intrinsic goodness or greatness to what I do, but because um, it was easy to stand out because so much of the academic teaching at the time was so bad. Hmm. So a lot of the comments <laughs> in the first couple of years are things like my professor won't explain anything. And he'd be like, what the <laughs> hell's going on there? Right. Uh, thank God for your video. Cause otherwise I couldn't, you know, I wouldn't have wow. made it through Plato. Right. Yeah. And you're like, wow, there must be a real, a lot of really bad teachers out there. Mm -hmm. And then there, there were people who were also like, I can't afford to go to college or I had to drop out. You know, this is really nice because I, I get to feel like I'm in, in, in class again. And it just kind of grew organically, you know, and then people started um, asking me, sometimes pestering me, hey, would you do a video on this? Would you do a video on this? And sometimes I was receptive and I'd be like, yeah, I could do some stuff on existentialism. I think I know something about that. Or, yeah, I could do some stuff on Hegel, you know, jumping into the half hour Hegel series without realizing how much work I was making for <laughs> myself, you know. And so I, I would do things like that. And then later on, I got better at like thinking about where the gaps were that I should shoot stuff on or what I really wanted to be doing. But I've never been a great planner. Hmm. You know, I think a lot of people get into doing, you know, content production. Right. And they, they like plan things out. And they got a calendar in advance. Yeah. And I just, you know, that never worked for me. So. Like, like the Dick stuff, you know, I, I just decided, yeah, you know, I've, I've been rereading this stuff. It's kind of cool. I've got this series on speculative fiction. Why not do, um, do Android's dream of electric sheep. And then after that, I was like, well, he's got another piece over here on the Android and the human. Why not do something on that? You know? Yeah. yeah. So it involved, um, putting off some of the other stuff that I had committed to doing this summer that that people were really looking forward to like hmm. that I'll, I'll do later this month like stuff on schopenhauer okay. um but you know sometimes you got to just uh you know do the stuff you're interested in yeah right? totally yeah for me i was like uh I, I need to to watch more of your stuff and i was looking at like the the more continental type stuff and it's like okay cool you know I'm, I'll, I'll make uh make some time for it and then i saw like Bob Pepper's uh, picture. I have it as the background. Bob Pepper's yeah, uh, yeah. picture of Philip K. Dick. And I was like, okay, well, that's it. I have to drop everything <laughs> I'm doing and watch it. I got the shirt. I'm wearing the shirt for you right now. Wow. I mean, got it, got it tattooed on my arm here. If you're, if you're a dickhead, you know, yeah, that's you, right. you can't get enough dick, right? That's right. So, I mean, that's, <laughs> that's, right. that's the funny thing is you get to make all these jokes. That's right. Yeah. It. It's amazing. Um, well, Greg, man, so what did you do your dissertation on? You said you have like this eclectic team that you oh, got right. to study with. Where, where was that? And then, um, yeah, what was the topic? 
Yeah, so I went to Southern Illinois University at Carbondale, which sure. at that time was was quite a great place to be, but now is is really in in you know a rough situation because the state of Illinois like didn't fund the colleges and universities for a couple of years during the financial crisis, and yeah. the department is like just decimated. But Greg, I, that, I went to I went to Northern Illinois, so um, yeah, I know I it's, know all about it's, it, man. It's crazy. Yeah, I mean, it's it, it, Northern is is not in great shape either, frankly. Right. Yeah, but it's not That's as right. bad as Southern. <laughs> Interestingly, Edwardsville, because there's Southern Illinois Carbondale, yeah, SIUE. Yeah, they're doing great. I know, I man. Mean, their wrestling program's great. Like, they're I don't know what's up with them. They got a good social media program too. Somehow they got plenty of money to do things and yeah. the philosophy department's got like, you know, about what we had back then, which was like 15 full-time professors. Wow. That's huge. Yeah. So I, I, um, I, I had kind of a weird eclectic uh, meandering around thing when I was there. I came in and I was originally going to do philosophy of language and I, I'd done a lot of stuff in analytic philosophy of language and then a lot of stuff in continental philosophy of language and i was actually like studying languages too at the time and then i veered out of that into i mean i guess you could call it continental i was i was interested in like writing my dissertation on hegel for a while um took hegel as my special thinker when i had to do my my preliminary examinations and, and i was basically told memorize the phenomenology you know and all of its dialectics and then get some of the logic in there too okay and uh and i you know and i, and I, I was able to do it back then i don't think i could now um but i um you know like i mentioned i, I got to take classes with other departments um i started getting into a lot of history of philosophy stuff, you know, once I'd learned Greek, I could, you know, read Plato and Aristotle and the original, and that opened up a lot of doors and reading, um, you know, Anselm and Aquinas and people like that in, in Latin was pretty eye-opening too. And so I wrote my dissertation on this, this guy who at one time was kind of a big name and now is almost completely forgotten, Maurice Blondel, hmm. who uh, was a French Catholic philosopher back when that was being, you know, being like a committed Catholic was enough to get you essentially blackballed within the French Academy. He didn't, huh. he didn't get work for a couple of years and then they put him out in the boonies. Uh, but he was, he was okay with that, you know, cause he liked teaching. And I, you know, the stuff that I, I did in my dissertation, the committee um, gave me a lot of freedom and latitude to do what I wanted. And so I, I produced this gigantic sprawling 450 page document that wow. was just unpublishable, you know, <laughs> and, and uh, I, I haven't looked at it in years, yeah. <laughs> frankly. Because, but it was good to do, you know, all the research that goes into it was kind of fun. And, you know, your first, your, your, your dissertation is your first book. So you're learning how to effectively write a book. Um, it just so happens that one only got published in, you know, a few copies that I think are still in the library there or something. Hmm. Um, actually, I mean, the copy that I have is in word perfect. So I'm, I, I'm pretty sure that all the codes don't work anymore. Oh, wow. Nice. <laughs> I, should, yeah. I should have created a PDF of it way back then. Yeah. But seriously. Now, now, now they're going to be uh, clamoring for it over on your, your YouTube channel. Let's see, like, let's go through point by point and. Yeah, I mean, it would be kind of a hot mess, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Going from memory. Fun to go but, back. I mean, after that, I mean, like, I, I got into all sorts of little, 
you could call them rabbit holes. Like I did a lot of work on Thomas Hobbes for a while Mm. and on Aristotle and um, thinkers in the Christian philosophy debates in the 1930s. That's what my, my uh, first book was on. And um, you know, if I found something that I was interested in, I, you know, I was, I was teaching full time and that was, I enjoyed that. Like my first job was teaching at Indiana state prison um, in, in ball state universities. uh, degree program, but it gave me a lot of time for doing research and writing. Mm. And, and so I, I just kind of pursued whatever interests I had. And, um, I wouldn't advise that to a lot of people cause it's, it's not going to like get you jobs or build your brand or reputation, but it worked good for me, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it seems like you had all this time, this, this, this space and freedom to learn philosophy philosophy like not yeah. just one yeah. you know analytic uh, uh language or something like that what um that, that i've been meaning to ask like what kind of philosophy do you practice today are you just philosophy generally construed or or do you find yourself in a particular tradition more than others um yeah that's a good question i mean i i say that i'm an eclectic hmm. which means that i draw upon multiple schools and traditions there's some that matter more to me and I draw on more heavily. And then there's some that I just like totally ignore. Right. Cause you can't yeah. possibly do everything. But uh, as time went on, I got more and more interested in history of philosophy in a broad sense. So not, not just doing history of philosophy where we're like trying to locate a philosopher in their historical context and say, you know, Leibniz had eggs this morning and that's why he wrote this piece this way, but more like, you know, what, what do these people that we acknowledge as important thinkers, what do they have to offer us in the present? Mm -hmm. And so, so there's a connection between history of philosophy understood in the right way and then philosophy is a way of life. Yeah. Um, the phrase that Pierre Adol made really famous, but which plenty of people have done besides Adol. And then, you know, that's going to bleed over into some analytic philosophy and some continental philosophy. Like take Hegel, for example. Like you can approach Hegel and be, be really interested in him as a continental philosophy person. And then there's certain things that you're going to pay attention to and other things you're not going to pay attention right. to. Right. right. If you're interested in him more in terms of uh, philo- history of philosophy, there's other things you're going to pay closer attention to. Hmm. So, you know, you can have multiple lenses, you could say. And, and you know, where I went to grad school, um, we had analytic philosophers who had tried to push everybody out of the department and failed. And so they were a little <laughs> bit humbled, you know. Okay. And then we had continental philosophers and then we had classical American philosophy, which was kind of unusual because hmm. most, most American universities don't have that. But, you know, we had two Dewey scholars and a oh, Peirce wow. scholar and, and people doing work on James and the transcendentalists. So, so that was good. I, I'm, I'm really happy that I got exposed to that. Although I kind of got sick of Dewey after, you know, <laughs> after you hear how great he is, you know, a million times. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so there was that. And then, I, I, like I said, I got to study history of philosophy by working with the classics department and the English department. And, and, uh, it was, you know, I, again, I, I think that it wouldn't have worked out for everybody. Like yeah. some people really need something structured, 
But you know, the other thing was too, SAU had an amazing research library, which mm. I think now is not again in, in such great shape, but I didn't realize just how good it was until I started looking at other higher tier schools that had lesser libraries wow. where you can't find as much stuff. Cause I had just go in and wander around and, yeah. you know, pick out stuff and, and read it if I wanted to, you know? Uh, so that, yeah, that was, that was really, it was a great time to be there. Um, yeah. Sounds like it, man. So, um, something I, I like to ask guests is about, um, about the analytic continental divide or so-called oh, yeah. divide. So, you know, um, yeah. Yeah. What do you make of that? Is that, um, some, some people will tell me it's passe and we're kind of past that. Others will say, of course not. No, no, no. There's a very sharp distinction. Um, what do you make of it? And, uh, well, I mean, real yeah. quick, I, I think sometimes, um, I've, I've got this kind of view that the continentals ask really good questions, um, but they're really confusing and, uh, the analytics, um, may, maybe less confusing, but sometimes, you know, they get pretty confusing as well. But they'll, yeah, they'll focus yeah. on, like, you know, uh, does this chair exist? And I think that's an important question, but um, maybe maybe they don't have the best uh, questions. So I don't know. Well, well, that's just a, a loose uh, caricature, and it's not accurate. But what do, you, what do you make of that? I think the divide is a very parochial way of understanding the world of philosophy. And it's artificial and, and doesn't really apply to you know, the majority of the centuries that philosophy has been done. Analytic yeah. philosophy is roughly, you know, if you want to trace it back to Frege, maybe 150 years old yeah. tops. Continental philosophy, you know, where should we start? Maybe like Hegel yeah. and Schelling. Um, that's not that old either. And, and you know, during a lot of this time, they weren't understanding themselves in those categories. The analytics were more than the continentals. <clears throat> they'll also say too that, and uh, continental philosophy and actual European philosophy are not the same thing. Okay. So like, you know, if you think about um, some of the traditions in, cause, cause continental philosophy comprises a bunch of different traditions, you know, mm -hmm. the phenomenological yeah. movement and, you know, um, structuralism and post-structuralism, which might coincide with it a bit, but might also not, um, you know, you've got things like, uh, European Thomism, which is really active through most of the uh, late 19th and 20th centuries, but doesn't make it into so-called continental philosophy very yeah. often. And, you know, there's, there'll be like um, lots of areas where the American version of what counts as continental or the British version leaves out all these other important thinkers, you know, mm. that, that are important in, in European history. So even continental philosophy is kind of a made up thing in, in some respects. Yeah. So, the, so to make a, like philosophy is divided basically into analytic and continental. Well, what about the whole history of philosophy? You know, right. or what about um, Chinese and Indian philosophy just to take the two like biggest other cultural spheres? And what about comparative philosophy when we bring Western philosophy into contact with say Chinese philosophy, or what about, you know, um, radical, um, you know, critical types of philosophy that don't fit neatly into analytic or continental, you know, feminism is not right. something that, that's what I was thinking of. Yeah. 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 Or, or, you know, um, the, and you've got other traditions, you know, the Marxist tradition doesn't fit neatly into either one of these. Um, you've got what we call philosophy is a way of life or what Alistair McIntyre calls tradition constituted rationalities, hmm. you know, 
he's a great example because he went from being an analytic and a Marxist to this neo Aristotelian and then beyond. Yeah. So there's there's all these different um, possibilities. And, I, and so I think it's not as if analytic philosophy isn't important and continental philosophy aren't important. But they, they're like two siblings that get into fights with each other and ignore everybody else in the room, and they get, the, they get most of the attention, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and we're in a time now where I think analytic philosophy has kind of, you know, there, there is no longer a, a canon that everybody reads. It's not like if you came up today in analytic philosophy, you're definitely going to read Quine or, I mean, you might, might not even read Wittgenstein for that matter. Yeah. Um, and that's true. Uh, that's, that's true. I mean, hopefully, you know, I, I really don't yeah. like Wittgenstein, but uh, I mean, you, everyone will have to read. Um, what is it like to be a bat? You know, that that's maybe one. Maybe. Uh, I mean, I never had to read that. Okay. I okay. Was, but Interesting. Yeah. So, so there's, there's not like a common canon. The vocabulary means one thing from one area. So like if you say externalism, well, that means one thing in, in philosophy of action, a different thing in epistemology. And, and so, you know, the analytics are in what we often call post-analytic uh, phase yeah. where there's no internal consistency other than like being opposed to the continentals and yeah. having a, a certain kind of vocabulary that includes big terms like intuition and defeater and you know stuff you like that right that's right yeah um, and the continental side is just as messy and you know you, you, there there are attempts to like schematize it like there's this great um reader by richard kearney that people often uh will assign if you're going to teach continental philosophy right it's got three nice neat traditions the phenomenological hermeneutical tradition, the Marxist critical theory tradition, and then the structuralist and post-structuralist tradition. But when you get down to like actual thinkers and you're like, okay, where does uh, Paul Ricoeur fit in? Hmm. Oh, well, he straddles all three of these. <laughs> yeah. Um, or, you know, well, why isn't Maurice Blondel in there? Or, or you know, Gabriel Marcel? Well, because they're, you know, existentialists or, um, you know, Catholic writers and they don't fit neatly into this, this scheme. So, so, you know, they're, they're both kind of a, a mess. Right. And yeah. it's, it's not as if history of philosophy is totally coherent either. So, right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've gotten a lot of random ones from my time um, studying theology. Like, so Paul Ricoeur will come up because mm. a particular theologian, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, Kevin Van Hooser would use him. And so I'd have to, I'd have to look up uh, Ricoeur and then I talk with my analytic philosopher friends I'm like, yeah, I'm reading Paul Ricoeur. And they're like, who, who? Like, dang it, all this work for nothing, you know? You know, the irony is that he is one of the people who, you know, came from Europe, so you can call him a continental philosopher, and he deliberately engaged the analytic philosophy of his time. He was a bridge mm. builder, you know? Mm. So he's, like, referencing Max Bloch, Black and, and um, I think, Davidson and the rule of metaphor. Oh, so, snap, okay. So they should know him, but they yeah. don't because they don't read enough. Yeah, you know? yeah. Yeah, that's something. Um, something with my analytic friends, and I don't want to bash them. I love them. Uh, I definitely probably lean uh, closer to their side. But in, in writing uh, analytic philosophy and, and learning the tradition, yeah, I, I would go. I came from theology, and in theology, it was like you have to represent everyone perfectly well, and you have to have a ton of sources to show that you read everything yeah, by yeah, everyone. And all yeah. Oh, you have to do that. And I would do that and they'd be like, what's all this stuff? What's what are all these, what are these notes? I'm like, dude, I'm showing you that I read this stuff. I'm like, I don't care. Just make the argument and stipulate, let this be true. Let, let this, you know, if he's saying this, then we can do. 
make it a conditional. I was like, oh, that's easier, but scary and terrifying to me. So I'm, I'm still learning the trade. Yeah, and it's good to think of it as like you can do the same stuff, but you can write it in different modes, right? So mm. like <clears throat> you could write a piece that has the whole review and you just take that out for the analytics. Yeah. <laughs> they, yeah. they don't have to know that it's there. It's <laughs> like when, so, you know, um, this is a different context, but when I go in and I do like workshops or consultations with business clients, like actual businesses, mm-hmm. I'm not telling them that the stuff about like emotional management is coming from Aristotle or Thomas Aquinas or the Stoics, unless they ask me, right? Okay. Because if I were to say, well, you know, Aristotle told us uh, this stuff about anger, their eyes are going to glaze over and they're going to mm. be like, I'm not listening to this, this bozo, you know? Yeah. Um, so I just tell them the stuff sort of presenting the argument, right? And then yeah. they're like, oh, this is, this is amazing. This is magic. And then, then I'll be like, yeah, I mean, this is coming from Aristotle or yeah. this is coming from Epictetus. You know, maybe you should read them and that's then they're awesome. more receptive to it. Right. Wow. Yeah. That's so cool. That's a, that's a great method there. Um, I'm randomly thinking about people who are building bridges. Um, any thoughts on like Michael uh, Pogliani? Any, have you have oh, looked at his stuff at all? I've, I've only read a little bit of his stuff, but I I've liked what I've read. Um, the great transformation <laughs> was a book that, um, Nobody had suggested in my classes, but I found it at a bookstore and I like, I was paging through it and I was like, this, this seems pretty cool. And then, then yeah. you read it. And yeah, so he's, he's a good example of somebody who could talk a couple different lingos, you know? Right. Yeah. 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 That's what I was thinking. He's, he's kind of weird. And I, again, another guy I got introduced to because of theology and I'm trying to make sense in certain circles in theology. It's like, you haven't read Pollyanna. What, what's your problem to test dimension? And then you go to other places and I'm like, yeah, so, you know, about tacit knowledge. And they're like, wait, 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 what are you talking about? I study epistemology. We're talking about tacit now. And it's like, dang it. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, but I, I, I've learned to embrace it and I actually enjoy it. And, and I'm looking to you as, um, it's kind of an example of saying, I just want, if it's philosophy, I want to know it. If, if it's, if other people take this to be philosophy, then I want to learn that and be able to talk uh, intellectually about it. Well, that's a, that's a really useful way to go about it. Right. Mm-hmm. I think you, you put your finger on something important. If other people are willing to say this is worth reading yeah. instead of just like saying, Oh, well, it doesn't fit into this structure that I got taught, you know, so therefore it's, it's crap. You know, what, what the right. hell do they know? Right. You look at, you look at people who you respect and if they're willing to take somebody seriously, then, you know, maybe the first time you read them, you didn't get something out of the person, but you're like, well, you know, if Heidegger thinks that there's something here, there's probably something here, you know, yeah. or yeah. if you pick whoever else you want. Um, I, I think there's, a lot of what we do in philosophy, we present it as if it's like universal reason and, you know, there's no contingency in what I'm doing. It's all pure necessity and, you know, everything follows logic. That, that's not how we do philosophy. That's not mm. how anyone's ever done philosophy, yeah. you know? I mean, who did Hegel read? It was very much contingent on who people thought you ought to read at the time and then where his proclivities led him, you know, and, and nobody can read everybody. Um, yeah. So I think there's, there's, I, I think it's a great idea to rely upon this. I don't know if you can make it an argument, but like so-and-so whose opinion I respect thinks that this person over here is worth reading or this work is worth reading. Therefore I'm going to give it a chance, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I like that. I, I think also um, 
one thing that was frustrating for me was I, I made the switch. I'm studying philosophy, and people would say, "Oh, cool. So, like, what do you think of of Nietzsche?" Right? I'm like, "Well, first yeah. is Nietzsche, maybe, right?" But, but no, look, I'm in, I'm studying analytic philosophy, and they're like, "Oh, well, I thought he was a philosopher," and I'm like, "Ah, oh, okay. Well, how do I? What do I? What do I do here?" And then I was like, "Well, fine. Let me just read. Let me just read him. I'm sick. Yeah, the yeah. fifth, sixth person asking me. Fine, I will read him, and then I'll be able to just talk with you because the whole point of me studying is I want to talk with people about ideas. Yeah. If they're asking me about these ki- types of ideas." Um, then I'm going to learn those ideas and I'm going to be able to talk with people about those. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's useful. I mean, you can't read everybody. Right? No, that's the and, problem. And, yeah. Well, and it seems like you've read everyone. I don't know. No, Greg. no. There's, there's huge, huge gaps, you know? Okay. And actually that's one of the uh, questions I often get from uh, people who are starting out in philosophy. They get dismayed because they, they walk into the library and they're like, Oh crap, I'm never going to be able to read all this stuff. And even if I do, I'm not going to remember sure. most of it. So therefore, how do I know I'm reading the right stuff? And, and the answer is, well, you don't until yeah. you like, you know, you get something out of it. I mean, we can be pretty confident that reading Plato and Aristotle and the Stoics and Augustine and Cicero is going to be helpful for you. But, you know, beyond that, who else should you read? Well, you know, you you have to kind of play around. And if you're, if you're spending a lot of time with ancient philosophy, you can't, you only get 24 hours a day. So you can't spend that time reading Nietzsche or, you know, people that are similar to him, but are not just saying exactly the same thing, like say Max Stirner, you know? Um, So everybody's got huge gaps, you Mm -hmm. know? Um, And and I I think Peter Adamson, he's got a history of philosophy without any gaps. That's because he sourced it out to other people. Right. (laughs) And I bet if we looked at it close enough, we'd, we'd find gaps. I'll I'll be, I'll be really curious to see if he, if he, if Maurice Blondell is in it when he gets to philosophy, you know? Yeah. Um, There's, there's probably going to be some, I, I haven't looked at it too, too carefully myself, but yeah, you're always going to have, some stuff that you you didn't get to and you know you could regret it and you're not even really regretting it because you don't know what you haven't gotten to right it's sort of like saying i've never been to albuquerque actually i've never been further west than whichever one is further west omaha or denver and i was only there for conferences so i didn't get to really see any of them so i've never been to albuquerque and i've seen you know um breaking bad yeah so i've seen a little bit of albuquerque and maybe i've seen something (laughs) some other show that had albuquerque in it but i don't know what i'm missing you know yeah Yeah. um and and i i don't have to worry about that you know Mm. um there's enough other stuff that i can concentrate on um closer to town you know i could say like uh there's there's cities in Wisconsin, my home state, that I haven't been to that would probably be cool for me to go to. I've been to most of the things that count as cities, but you know, go further north and maybe I haven't hit those. That's closer to home. I should go there instead of Albuquerque. Yeah. Right. And yeah. then maybe there's nothing there. Maybe it's just a, a bunch of silos and you know, a couple strip malls and. But if you meet a person from there, you get to say, yeah, I've been there. I know that silo. Yeah, I saw that that, oh, that old tilting silo. And they go, you saw that silo? And they freak out. I love well, that's, that. That's because we're social beings, right? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. We, we care about, you know, where we came from and that other people think that's important. And Yeah. yeah. Well, and that's, that's how I feel about some of the obscure works where it's like if you can get – if you can uh, just read an obscure piece – 
yeah, uh, yeah. You, you bump into someone who did their dissertation on that they will like kiss you they're like what are you serious no one else knows this guy at all like the the jansenists holy cow man no, no one knows the jan pascal was jansenist you know like this whole yeah, thing yeah. I, I love it. i love um getting in deep with, with where someone like lives it's so so cool um but greg man i, I wanted to see if we could get uh definition of philosophy like what what, oh, what is it that I, we're talking about i don't i don't have one i mean <laughs> i actually start my my intro students off with like a whole list of proposed definitions of philosophy yeah. and then we talk about why they work for some kinds of philosophy but not others mm -hmm. um i mean I, I i have gotten to the point where i can at least say that philosophy consists in several things connected with each other and that um there's like tools that we we see philosophers using, you know, like making okay. distinctions or making arguments or stuff like that. And, you know, you can look at philosophy as a literature, which it certainly is. You go to like a bookstore. Um, now, you know, most bookstores are going to have some kind of cheesy, crappy stuff in there with the philosophy. Stuff, that's right. But, but that's time. okay. You know? Yeah. yeah. Um, and then, you know, philosophy is an activity. It's something that we do. Like we could say we're doing philosophy right now, you know. Um, and then it's, it's, uh, depending on what's, which approach you're taking, it's something that's got its own kind of norms and traditions to it. Right. Yeah. Um, and it's, you know, it's, uh, got its own objects, which are also the objects of other disciplines. Yeah. Um, but they get looked at maybe in more generality or in different ways, you know, with more freedom sometimes. Right. Yeah. And, and it is a discipline, but. Man, I mean, you think about like the the two thousand plus uh, universities and colleges that we have here in the United States. You like look at philosophy departments from one to the next. Not saying that you could actually compare all two thousand, however many else there are, but just like some, and you're you're like, well, the discipline of philosophy over here has some commonalities with the discipline of philosophy over here, but they yeah. definitely are not the same, you know from one to the next. Yeah. Well, so with, with that in mind, then um, who, who gets to call themselves a philosopher? Oh, that's a tough one. I mean, in a way it's, and this is goes all the way back to Plato's Republic. He notes this problem. Anybody mm. can call themselves a philosopher if they want to. Right. Mm. And maybe it'll stick, maybe it'll work, maybe it won't. Um, and very often some of the people who are doing, let's call it better philosophy or more philosophical philosophy are not going to be recognized, um, by those who've kind of taken over the, the field. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, anybody can call themselves anything. It's whether it gets bought into by other people and whether it gets bought into by the people who maybe are better informed or, huh. You know, yeah. but, yeah. but there isn't going to be any, any real consensus. I mean, you're, you're, you're going to see people say Heidegger wasn't a real philosopher. He's just making up bullshit words, you know, <laughs> and you're like, no, I mean, he does have a tendency to like, you know, be a little full of himself at times. And, and he does make up terms. Yeah. They're not just like totally made up right he's explaining them in it and you could say uh, wittgenstein wasn't a philosopher or pick whoever else you want oh here's another great example ayn rand right yeah ayn rand is not a philosopher well she is she's just not a good one yeah you there know? you go that's nice so, yeah you know we sometimes we're using philosopher in a like classificatory way and sometimes we're using it in an evaluative way yeah and sometimes it's just like who gets to be in our little club you know that's right 
the evaluative one is I, I hold philosophers um, in such a high regard. I, I think like for a culture yeah, to have yeah. philosophers, like I, I love it. That's why I want to be one. You know, I, I, I love, so I'm like, Oh no, I'm not. I ran, I ran and like, maybe, maybe we even like exclude uh, Will Durant because his book was so bad and has such, like, you know, such, such bad ramifications. You know, I'll tell you something. This is a total tangent, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I started doing these videos lately, um, calling out fake quotes because there's like oh, okay. way too many fake quotes attributed to Plato or Aristotle or whoever. Yeah. And I found that William Durant, um, given his propensity to like paraphrase and to give you his take about what people are doing, he is one of the supplier, even though he didn't intend to do it, of fake quotes because people yeah. will read his book and they're like, they take something out of there and they'll say like, well, this is what Aristotle actually said. And it's not what Aristotle said. Yeah. And it's it, instead of what Durant is saying that Aristotle said, and usually Durant's getting it half right, half wrong, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, wow. <laughs> so, they can just be traced back to him. Well, that's, that's sometimes, you know, it's always in the bookstores. Um, yeah. It's, it's perennially, um, uh, what would you call it? It's a, it's a, it's a bestseller forever. Yeah. Right. And so someone would be like, Hey, look at this book I got. And it's like, Oh man, you should, uh, yeah, let me think. Who should you do? Well, like Copelstons, but then it's like, well, good luck because now you have fifteen or whatever <laughs> twenty volumes here. Let me give you these instead of this nice little Will Durant one. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Cobbleston is the guy that was kind of the standard when I was in grad school. But looking back on it, he does some philosophers better than others. You know, mm, okay. Even he's got some, I mean, he's certainly got gaps, right? Yeah, yeah. And then he's also got places where you're like, well, uh, I don't know that the Stoics were actually just about this, you know? Yeah, yeah. So that seems like it's it's the case with so much lately where, I mean, you can look on like TikTok or something and you see like, <laughs> did you did you think this growing up? Well, actually, no. You know, like look at the the, the food pyramid. Actually, no. And like the Stoics yeah. or the Epicureans, they the Epicureans wouldn't have... Uh, stuff their face all the time like you guys got it wrong it's like dang it like everything is so wrong it's it's unbelievable yeah i mean any philosophical term that especially those that are assigned to like a particular school or derived from a founder yeah um is pretty much going to mean it's it won't be the opposite <laughs> thankfully <laughs> it will be yeah. something quite different so like yeah epicureans not it's not just like pure uh, unabashed hedonism stoic doesn't mean repressing emotions even though lowercase s cynic doesn't mean just being a jerk you know right. um and we could go on and on and on i was actually thinking at one point about like doing a uh there's this this thing called listenable right and and it's it's one of these many platforms you can like produce classes on okay and it's audio stuff right so they want the lectures to be like three to ten minutes and nice and short and for a general audience and i thought wouldn't it be cool to do a class where you take all these terms um, like, you know, platonic, you know, the platonic idea of something, huh. you know, if, if you've got the platonic idea of something, you're not going to be able to see it. Hmm. So I'm not the platonic ideal of a philosopher. This is not the platonic ideal of a book. Right. But we yeah, use yeah. it that way all the time. Right. And so I thought it'd be kind of cool to go through and like say, okay, what, what did the original meaning uh, consist in back then? what are people calling it now? What's the difference between them? I think that would be really helpful for a lot yeah. of people. Right. I, I think you're right. Helpful. And uh, so frustrating. Cause sometimes when I learned the, the meanings of words or of different schools of philosophy, 
I, I try so hard not to be like the actually guy. So someone, something <laughs> will come up. Someone will, will yeah, tell yeah. me the, the hardest one for me is someone will be like, that's so trivial. And I'm like, Ooh, that, that relates to the trivium, which is, you know, logic, grammar, <laughs> and, and uh, what is it? Trivial logic, grammar, and rhetoric. And it's like, yeah, Oh, yeah. if anything, we need to get trivial. We need to be trivial, but us, us uh, pragmatic Americans have flipped the, the meaning and now trivial's bad. There's another one like that. Oh, that's just semantics. And right. you're like, semantics yeah. is like the whole study of meaning. Right. <laughs> so right. It matters. It's kind of important. Yeah, yeah. totally, man. Um, well, with, with the idea of, of who gets to be called a philosopher, uh, I wanted to, to transition to talk a little bit about Philip K. Dick because, um, yeah, absolutely. Man, I, I've, I, uh, I picked him up cause my dad, my dad writes, uh, some, some, uh, sci-fi himself and he's obsessed with, uh, science fiction, the stars, my destination, Alfred best. Maybe I forgot who wrote yeah, that. That's Bester. Yeah. Yeah. Bester. Yeah. Uh, loves it and made us read it as kids. And it was a little graphic for me as a kid, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but from there, got into Philip K. Dick and just like, man, I, I love him. He's crazy. He's like C.S. Lewis if he took LSD and lost like a lot of his hope, maybe. Um, <laughs> yeah. But 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 I, I came to find out that like he he studied some philosophy in undergrad. And so some of this oh, yeah. made some sense. Um, do you think that like when you think of Philip K. Dick, um, obviously everyone says, well, sci fi author and, you know, um, uh, Blade Runner, you know, the, the book behind Blade mm -hmm. Runner. Do you, do you think of him as a, as a philosopher? Can, can we rightly call him that? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I mean, if we if we broaden the sense enough, maybe, but then we'd have to say that he's a philosopher who does his philosophy through uh, literary media, right? Yeah. And, and yeah. not just like philosophical dialogues like, say, Plato or the other dialogue right. writers, but through – I mean, this is part of what I really love about Dick is he he's eminently philosophical like Dostoevsky is also like Shakespeare is right. Mm. Um, or, uh, Jorge Luis Borges or Ursula K. Le Guin. Um, and he'll have his characters working through, um, ideas from philosophy, psychology, and, and theology, yeah. sometimes in dialogue with each other, sometimes in like interior monologues, sometimes remembering what they learned back in school or something like yeah. that, and then seeing an application. And what's, what's really interesting is he will sometimes, he doesn't worry like a cobblestone would with like, I got to present this, you know, exactly the way it was you know what nietzsche was saying he'll pick up on whatever he wants and he'll he'll use it yeah. sometimes deforming it in the process but oftentimes revealing to us sides that we're kind of missing out on yeah. and so i think that um what goes on in his works you know we get to see ordinary people engaging with philosophical ideas in a way that you'd like to see happening in, you know, like an intro class, but yeah. he's, and he's not doing it as at an intro level either. He's, he's no. doing it at a, like a graduate level. Yeah. So, you know, to come back to the question, does that make you a philosopher? Um, I don't know. Um, I think, I think it's better to look at him like, like a Dostoevsky, like somebody mm. who knows a lot of philosophy, has thought an awful lot about it, but is, is more concerned with, um, writing good stories, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a great point, Greg, because it doesn't seem like he, it doesn't seem like he's trying to teach us a lesson, uh, and if it is, it's right, not, right. It's, it's not on the nose. There's a, he, he, he has this book. It's not straightforward. Out. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, are you familiar with time out of joint? Mm -hmm. 
So in there, he doesn't tie up like most of his books. He doesn't tie up all the loose ends. And you're like, wait, yeah. what, what happened here? In Time Out of Joint, he uh, you find out that, you know, he's in. Um, uh, what, what's that movie with Jim Carrey? Uh, they, they oh, totally Eternal, Sunsh- Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Is that no, that, that one. That one's close to it. But uh, yeah, uh, uh, um, Tr- Truman Show. It's basically oh, Truman right, Show, right, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and um, but so you go, okay, fine. Um, you know, he he had his memory repressed, and you know, he's really mapping out bombs and stuff. But there's this weird scene where time stopped, and he went to like a, a lemonade stand or something like that, and he found these words. There were just words on paper, and he, he he all these like items out in reality started turning into just the words. And you're like, there's something there with like philosophy of language type stuff and con- concepts and how we view the world and maybe some. Um, Kant in there like this is going to be crazy when he reveals what he's doing here and he just doesn't tie it up and you're like wait yeah yeah what happened with the little slips of paper with words on them <laughs> and he's collecting them and you just no 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 it doesn't resolve yeah I mean you could, this is a little bit of a tangent to that but I think you could think of like a, what a lot of his characters are going through as they're they're not just philosophical thought experiments, which are rather short, like maybe a paragraph to sure. two pages, but they're more like, well, what if this really was the case? How would things pan out? You know, mm. um, that's, that's what, uh, that's what's going on in a lot of the stories, you know, like yeah. what, what would be the, I mean, so think about man in the high castle, what would be the case if the historically, the, the Nazis and the, uh, imperial japanese had won the war and what would be the case if like there were multiple dimensions that you could move one to the other yeah. and yeah. stuff like that you know um well so in the, in the in the show they do that but in the book i was so unclear on whether he whether exactly were in the right were they in the world and they were all just confused and they're like oh yeah wait no hitler did lose or were they in a different reality like well right the the, the show was kind of heavy handed in that respect. Right. Totally, it, it, yeah. it, it like plays out all this stuff happening in different dimensions. It is in there in the book. Um, but it's, it's, it's only sort of hinted at this is where the, and they, of course they don't have movies either. It's all books, right. Yeah. yeah. Rather than movies. Um, but the, uh, the novel is charting out, um, our world and well, a world like our world, not exactly our world in which the allies had won, there's another thing too that Dick actually said really uh, interesting in a radio or not a radio interview, but like a taped interview. Um, he talks about, you know, because the Oracle plays such a big role that Yijing in, in that oh, book. Yeah. Yeah, he yeah. said he used the Oracle to write the book. And then <laughs> in the interview, he said, I quit doing that because the Oracle lies to you. Yeah. So what parts are, true and what parts are not yeah, you're man. right there's there's often this kind of fuzziness left after we're done with a dick novel yeah you know well so thinking about um so for those who don't know for the listeners uh do androids dream of electric sheep is the book behind blade runner and uh like all book nerds say the book's better um you know oh, i like the totally movie <laughs> Just, it's, there's so many things that they they missed uh, that they left out, and one of them is is mercerism. Yeah. And uh, it, for the listener, man, go go check out uh, Greg's YouTube channel, Greg Gregory B. Sadler. Right. Um, mm-hmm. You have four or five, maybe six, seven uh, episodes on on uh, this book uh, on on the Android's Dream of Electric Sheep. I want to say eight. Okay. That might be the right number. I mean, they'll find yeah. it. No matter yeah, yeah, what. yeah. Go find it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but 
the 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 this idea of mercerism doesn't make it in the movie at all and, and mercerism yeah, is like this religion yeah. of empathy yep. and um it doesn't it doesn't make it in but it's this huge play uh this this huge like kind of battle of ideas between like the 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 humans who are empathizing so much so that they're going into this little like box and they're using it almost like a drug and the yeah. androids who don't empathize and that that's like this battle of ideas going on behind just the uh killing of androids you know yeah and the androids don't empathize with each other which is why they can be turned against each other yeah um yeah it's i mean it, it, the only thing that really survives in the movie is the Voigt camp test, right? Yeah. That we see at the very beginning, which gets used a whole bunch of times in the novel. Um, and I think only gets used at the very beginning of Blade Runner itself. Yeah. And I, hence, I don't, hence, I, hence. Yeah, and I don't remember the the recent one. Did they use that? Yeah, in, in that, they did. That they one? did um, no? for, for K. He would have to come in uh, and they would say like, you're way off. Your levels are way off. And okay. somehow yeah. he was supposed to like control his emotions or something like that. Yeah. But it's, it's supposed to measure your empathetic reaction to the torture, cruelty, or destruction of animals, which the androids don't, don't have. Um, and, and yeah, leaving that out of the movie. I mean, there's so many things I'm going to do an episode actually about differences between the book and the movie, because I'm kind of bothered by how much I like the movie as a, a teenager and a college student yeah, yeah, and how much was missing from the movie that Ridley Scott, I guess, didn't think was worth putting in. Yeah. You know, um, it's weird too, that Dick um, himself was so complacent about, he was yeah. like, yeah, it's a great movie, you know? Right. He, he did. I think he was helping with the screenplay and it's like, dude, you missed all your stuff though. All this stuff, like, yeah. Uh, it's, isn't that kind of a strange, and I mean, he, he was so sensitive to so many things. And then, yeah. I mean, this is towards the end of his life, of course, right. He's going to die of a stroke before yeah. the movie actually comes out. But, um, so maybe there was something wrong with him before yeah. that. Yeah, it could be. Um, so I, I found your your episode so helpful just because, um, well, partially because uh, it's just nice to have someone else talk about this stuff because people are like, oh, yeah, it's great. But it's like, wait, I Philip K. Dick is the kind of author where you ha you read the book and you have to go talk about it. That's why yeah. there's yeah. there's dickheads out there because they're like, well, I need to ask someone about this. You know, uh, Beyond Lies the Web. One of his short mm -hmm. stories is like, what happened here? What's going on? <laughs> yeah, I need to know. Do you think this too? And um, with with Mercer, something that you brought out in, in one of your uh, videos, Mercer, he does, it seems like he does bring back this spider. Um, he Maybe, has like actual right? power. Yeah, he, it seems like he has powers in the world, but he's debunked by the androids. The androids show out, uh, they show that um, what, what everyone took to be Mercer was just an actor and he was just some like drunk. Um, yeah. but then they said, no, and Mercer agreed to it, but he was like, look, some things still have power, even though you can debunk them. It doesn't change anything as how, it, how it's put. And the androids don't understand that it's not going to change anything. Right. Mm. Because they, they're, uh, they're very, very smart and they're incredibly yeah. sophisticated, but there's some things that they just don't, don't get. Um, yeah. And Mercer shows up too, to help Deckard deal with the android that's the most difficult for him, the one who's uh, modeled after Rachel Rose and the Pris yeah. android, right? And he gives him, uh, like, revelation. He, like, tells him something that he couldn't know without Mercer being there, like she's around the corner or something like exactly. that. Exactly, yeah. 
and and so he he's doing so there's like two things to that right he's giving him like you said some privileged information about the universe and and at the same time there's a why behind it why why is he doing this why is he singling out this one guy um it's not that he like has an irrational hate for androids because they debunked him. It's more like this is preserving life. And that's what grocerism yeah. is fundamentally about is mm. solidarity with uh, other living things. Yeah. I mean, it's, 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 there, there is a, there is something that I find kind of troubling reading this through. Um, and it was, it was posed in the early chapters when, Deckard is talking with his boss and then has to go and um, apply the Voigt-Camp test at the Rosen Corporation and he applies it to Rachel Rosen, who is an android, right? Yeah. And before before uh, the revelation comes about, she's like, you would have, you know, he tests and he's like, she's an android. And she's like, I'm not an android. You would have killed me, right? Yeah. So what do we do with people that are lacking yeah. empathetic uh reactions because of you know trauma that they've had or um maybe they just you know there's some sort of biological Parents. yeah sure yeah um do we say that they're not they're not effectively human they're just androids um i think dick was really worried about that yeah well and and that's what's so um that's what's so cool about this book that he he kind of ratchets things up and says, look, uh, intelli- mm-hmm. and, and I, I, I have trouble saying that he's trying to teach a lesson because I, I have this theory that he just doesn't do that. He, he doesn't wrap things up. But there is a, a lesson in like his Voigt Kampf test is an obvious allusion to the Turing test. But the Turing test is all about just can you fool someone intellectually? Yeah. Yeah, this yeah. is like you can't know. This is emotion. This is deeper. Who cares about uh, the intellect here? This is about the soul or something. Yeah. The other test that they have in it, the, I forget the first name. It's the something Bonelli test. Yeah. Yeah. has to do with more mechanical stuff. Like uh, it has to do with something with like a, a reflex that you have. Mm-hmm. So you've got like three possibilities, cognitive, you know, yeah. um, affective, and then just purely mechanical. Yeah. Um, it's like Plato's uh, trichotomy. The yeah. 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 Except, you know, one of the things that I, I do like about Plato's anthropology is the rational part of the soul is not just this cool, you know, calculating part. Yeah. It's got its own desires and its own pleasures. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So, so you're, you know, like it, 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 need, it needs things to be a certain way. It wants things to be a certain way. Yeah. You know. It's not just like Spock. Well, maybe even exactly. Spock's not like yeah, Spock, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, another thing maybe, uh, I don't know. If if uh, if this is like common knowledge, but it seems like Mercer is like an allusion to Sisyphus. Do you, is is I you know I can see the the resemblance in that he's going up a hill, right? And, and he's like Jesus, like he's like a Jesus Sisyphus, like he's suffering on our behalf, kind of. Yeah, and 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 his suffering gets repeated over and over again. Yeah. And we're we're if we grasp the handles of the empathy box, we're we're being invited to like go along on the ride. Um but he's not been condemned to it the way Sisyphus was. And he you know Sisyphus is all by himself, whereas Mercer, mm. we're all in it together, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. That that um, 
Dick's idea about empathy is so fascinating. A lot of times I'll get heat from people. They'll say empathy's empathy is either uh, you can't actually do it because you can't get inside someone else's feelings. So simple, you know, we need sympathy, or or it's it's somehow wrong to to want to do that. And Dick's like, no, yeah, no, no, we're we're actually having this fusion. Let's go all in. We're fusing and feeling each other's feelings, and um, yeah, it plays such a huge part in this book that that. I think it's a word yeah, don't. that that people use. There is no consensus use of the word empathy okay. and when you look at the literature that's out there. And um, very often you'll see people doing a lot of writing, like in self-helpy kind of stuff. And then they'll tell yeah. you what they think empathy is and how like they're maybe there's like two different kinds or four different kinds or pick okay. whoever's theory you want. Um, and I think that Dick is using it in a very broad sense. To, to encompass a couple other things that we might not necessarily place under empathy. Um, but yeah, I mean, the people who, if somebody tries to tell me that eh, empathy is overrated, you can't really put yourself in another person's shoes. I'm, I'm more like, well, I know that you can't <laughs> and I'm not going to walk down a dark alley with you because Seriously. I, cause you just like gave me the tell. But yeah, that doesn't mean that the point. rest of us don't have it. You know? Wow, that's good. So, that's really good. Yeah. Um, so so one, one of the big uh, points, I don't know if it's a point or not, but you can help me. Um, sure. Uh, one, of, one of the big points is, is that uh, the androids, they don't empathize with each other, even though they kind of do. Like uh, you, you brought that out in your, in your video. It's like, oh, they kind of do, though. And, but it's not the same way maybe that we empathize with each other. But yeah. they, don't, they don't empathize with the animals. And we find this out because... Uh, um, not Pris, but uh, what's her name? Um, oh, um, the, the real uh, M Garden. Yeah. Um, the, no, the, the the actual the real. Oh, Rachel Rosen comes in and throws the sheep off the roof. Oh, that too. Yeah, yeah. And that well, was I was like, thinking of the spider, but yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, so so she throws it off the roof, and it's like devastating for me. It's not the happy ending you get in in some of the uh, yeah, Blade Runner yeah. uh, extended cuts or whatever. But it was so devastating because he did all this work, and she just killed the sheep, and it's like. Oh man, and they 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 show their value. They show their uh, status in society by what kind of animals they keep, and that's my kind of thing. I I have like uh, you know twenty turtles, uh, and I have a dog. Oh, really? I, I love animals. Um, so for me, I'm looking at this and I'm saying, okay, as an animal lover myself, uh, I keep endangered species, which is totally it, I have permits for them. So relax, uh, DNA. <laughs> but I have, I'm trying to breed uh, endangered turtles and help you know repopulate okay. Illinois. Okay, but. So for me, looking at from that perspective, I'm like, Philip K. Dick is showing us what it means to be human. Part of yeah, being human yeah. is empathizing with animals. And it, even if you're the most intelligent person in the world, but you don't empathize with animals, there's something lacking in your humanity. And I'm like, maybe that's totally me reading in because I'm a turtle guy, you know? Well, I, there's, I mean, there's a lot there. I mean, it's interesting um, because turtles are not the go-to, I think, for most people when they're thinking about like it's dogs and cats, right? Totally, totally. And then maybe birds, you know, or maybe um, horses or something like that. But we tend to think about reptiles. Well, they're reptilian. They're cold. They cold, don't care about yeah. anything. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, and it, you know, we're we're learning more and more. I think that that throughout most of history, we've it's partly because we just didn't have the footage, right? I mean, you go onto YouTube and you can see yeah. all this interesting stuff about interspecies friendships taking place, yeah. you know? So we, we have an access that I think a lot of most people lacked in, in the past and had to just rely on like folklore about animals. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's, 
there there is something not necessarily like every single animal the way that mercer mercerites are i mean they're also in a situation of artificial scarcity most of the animals Mm -hmm. have died off they're very precious right so if if you and i lived in a world in which you know even mosquitoes uh were rare maybe we wouldn't like slap the mosquito you know yeah right um whereas i don't have any problem doing that right now you know And, 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 you know, I, I'm, I'm an arachnophile. I like spiders, okay. but I'll kill a brown recluse as soon as I see it. For or sure. even a hobo spider. Cause they're kind of like them, you know? Yeah. 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 So with us, it's, it's, it's a different, we live in a different kind of world and we know many, many people who are not empathetic to animals and it couldn't, it, it can be in part because they, they lack a certain maturity. Um, children are often very cruel to animals and hmm. not, not, because they're necessarily traumatized. They just like to pick up a grasshopper and they're like, what happens if I pull its leg off? You know? Right. Um, and then they need adults to tell them, you know, um, that's not cool. Don't do that. You know? Yeah. Um, or, you know, the kid with the, the magnifying glass burning the ants. Right. Yeah. Um, is that because well, they're, they're empath- they're like their capacity for empathy isn't, isn't there yet. Or is that something that like you think necessarily needs to be taught? Um, I think it's complex. And Mm. and I think a lot of children, part of what it means to be immature is to be thoughtless. You know, if you, if you have, if somebody comes up to you and you're, they're like, Hey, what are you doing to that animal? And then they're suddenly like, Oh, what am I doing to this animal? I shouldn't do that. Right. But until then they're, they're kind of working along the lines of um, something, you know, kind of like, like a robot. Yeah. Um, just following out out programming and then there can be like all sorts of damage that's done through trauma that that hardens people and makes them yeah you know maybe cruel because that's a way to feel like you're on top of things or to feel alive or stuff like that you know yeah yeah um and i think it's a i think it's a real challenge to grow into a person who is empathetic without just being a ball of mush yeah you know <laughs> man that's true that is uh that's a tricky one. Yeah. Grace and truth. Um, yeah. Man. Well, so Greg, I wanted to finish up with one uh, final question. I I think I gathered that you went to a Catholic high school because your sub was teaching Augustine. Is that? Yeah. Although, um, like a lot of Catholic high schools of that time in the 1980s, it was uh, a lot of lip service. And, you know, I I get these brochures from them and they're like, you know, look at all the stuff that we're doing at Catholic Memorial, you know, living a life of charity. I'm like, where the hell was that when I was there? (laughs) (laughs) There wasn't anything remotely like that. There was all this bullying going on and, you know, all all this, this just kind of, kind of, what would you call it? Like uh, superficial Catholic culture, you know? Sure. Sure. Um, but what was what was the actual question? Yeah. Well, so um, just a question about the the role of philosophy of religion um, in philosophy. Like, okay. um, is it yeah, is yeah. it a is it a subsidiary? Is it the queen of the philosophy science? Like, uh, wh- what role um, do phil- uh, philosophy of religion type questions? Is there a god? Uh, wh- yeah. What does that play? I mean, I think within philosophy itself. Um, it's not the queen of the sub philosophical disciplines. It's one among many. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and it, there's often a lot of overlaps with other disciplines. Like you're going to do metaphysics. Well, it's important whether there's a God or not, or how right. causality works, and, yeah. you know, that, that sort of thing. Um, 
I mean, philosophy of religion is itself kind of, it's something that got reconstructed later on. It, it shows up primarily from like, as philosophy of religion, as a discipline from the, the 19th century onward, right? Yeah. But people were doing all sorts of stuff that fits into the philosophy of religion without calling it that. They called right. it, you know, other other things. Um, philosophy also has to think about its relationship with other disciplines, like which could include theology or history or the fine arts. And then it also has to um, clarify its own relation with, important areas of human life like theology is not the same thing as religion right because mm -hmm. um, you can i mean there are atheist theologians out there yeah right right um yeah but you know if you're if you're a philosopher you do have to take what maurice blondell called the religious hypothesis seriously at some point unless mm -hmm. you grew up in a, like a totally secularized environment or you know you're you're just irrationally hostile to religion and won't won't take it seriously at all yeah. but i mean that doesn't mean that every single philosopher has to you know think about big religious issues in order to to do philosophy yeah um well, do you think do you think every philosopher ought to have an opinion on god's existence oh i don't know um oughts are tough yeah i mean i I'm willing to say that there, because there's a lot of people who are very narrowly specialized and they just do their, their shtick with their, you know, reading their 10 articles over and over again that are common in that field. And maybe you know, 11th will get added five years down the line. And I don't want to say that those people aren't doing philosophy. Um, I don't want to exclude them from the field. Right. Yeah. yeah. Do they have to think about, issues in the philosophy of religion if they're just doing analytic philosophy of action i don't think so mm. as a person yeah now i mean every philosopher is also a person <laughs> yeah maybe sooner or later you have to develop some sort of position on that but but a lot of on a lot of things like that you know our positions are kind of loosey-goosey just kind of not well thought out and mm. uh, you know you know what comes to mind right now is thinking about augustine he um, talks in the confessions about when he first started praying and it was because he didn't want to get beaten. So he would pray to God, you know, um, let me remember my lessons or let, you know, don't let these people beat me. And, and they were pretty terrible to the kids back then. And they all, they had the same thing like, well, this worked for us, you know, yeah. uh, we turned out just fine, <laughs> you know, let the beatings commence. Right. Yeah. Um, and uh he said he says at a couple different points the god that i was praying to obviously the god didn't hear me because it was like a figment of my imagination now this is a guy who is a catholic theologian who you know when you when you hear somebody like that saying that you're like oh what's going on there right yeah. well he's he's acknowledging that a lot of our understandings of god that we like pray to or we react against or stuff like that are, are basically just they're not they're not related at all to whatever the thing out there if it exists, you know, whatever God would be, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think that's, that's, uh, that's part of what holds a lot of people back from considering these big questions. I mean, if you're, if your idea of God is like big father in the sky and your father was a jerk, why would you want to have anything to do with God? Right. 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 Yeah. And, and I mean, in theology, that's, that's a, a huge deal. If, if God is uh, calling himself father and he's put, 
fathers in the world to represent him and you misrepresent God by beating yeah. your kid or being a terrible father, like that's a really big deal, you know? So yeah, yeah, it's, it's totally right. Yeah. You know, to, to swing back, I mentioned that I, I taught, you know, at Indiana state prison and I would hang out with the other teachers and some of them taught theology and hmm. they, they were, you know, a ball state was a secular state institution, but grace college was there as well. And, hmm. and this guy would talk about, his classes and exactly that, how he would have to wean these um, anywhere from like 20 to 60 year old men away from uh, conceptions of a father who was either like, you know, absent yeah. or drunk all the time or would beat the crap out of them and their mom and their, their siblings or would spend all the household money or, or brought you know. them into the, the crime world himself. Oh, exactly. Yeah. 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 Yeah, man. Um, that that point, that last point about uh, from Augustine, like praying to some to a God that doesn't exist. That's so it's so interesting. And I think um, for those who hate uh, analytic philosophy, like <laughs> this is where this is where like definite descriptions and rigid designators come in. Like, what well, do you think that your your word for God like finds its way to God, or if, yeah, if your description's wrong, does it not? You know, and uh, it doesn't refer. I, I love that stuff. So so uh, I will just drop a, a last. Uh, Analytic philosophy is not so bad to the, to the <laughs> yeah, this is awesome. Well, Greg, man, thanks so much for uh, giving me your time here. This has been super fun. I'd love to have you back on. Please come back on. We can oh, talk sure, more about yeah. Dick stuff. Um, before I let you go though, um, I'm sure if you're listening to this, you've already, you already know about Greg, but if you don't, uh, can you tell us like where, where can they find you? Um, what, what's your channel like? Well, the easiest thing is just type Gregory Sadler into Google. There's a few others out there. Actually, I'm going to do a okay. video eventually about the other Greg Sadlers. Nice. But to their detriment, I have dominated the Google <laughs> rankings. So like all the stuff will come up, you know. I, I mean, I, I have the the video channel, which is just called Gregory B. Sadler. Um, I have a, I have a podcast called Sadler's Lectures hmm. that people can find. And I do some writing on medium and um i mean it, it's all of it's really easy to find just with awesome. google yeah. i mean i shouldn't i shouldn't be like necessarily advocating the you know the big conglomerate corporation you know but... what would philip k dick say, say about us right now yeah exactly that's so good that's so good <laughs> well thanks so much man this has been fantastic uh that's gonna have to do it for now this has been parker's pensies and as always all glory to god